when Christianity, by the way, those of you that are looking for great books on sort of primer on history of Christianity, a great book uh, called Rise of Christianity by a guy named Rodney Starks. It's a great, great book. It's only about 180, 200 pages. It gives a solid historical background on the history of Christianity. And when you read the book and other books on the history of Christianity, um, there were a number of things that led to essentially this tiny small movement that began with a handful of uneducated people that essentially conquered the Roman Empire that in about 100 years, 50% of the entire Roman Empire confessed Christ as Lord. And one of the two, two things that characterized the early Christians, and it's fascinating reading it, the two things that characterized the early Christians is it speak so powerfully into our day today because the two things that characterized Christianity was this for Christians. One, in a culture in which people were incredibly stingy with their money and very, prom- very promiscuous with their bodies, is a culture in which Christian, uh, people were incredibly stingy with their money and incredibly promiscuous with their bodies. Christians came along and Christians embraced because of Christ the Christian sex ethic. What was the Christian sex ethic? And we're going to go in depth today. But the way they did live their lives was totally countercultural and completely different from the rest of the Roman world. In a world in which people were stingy with their money and promiscuous with their bodies, Christians came along and they were incredibly stingy with their bodies. They were incredibly promiscuous with their money. A culture in which people were incredibly stingy with their money and very promiscuous with their bodies, Christians came along and embraced the Christian sex ethic, which said that sex is for husband and wife in the context of marriage. And they gave and gave and gave to the poor. And people around that culture looked at the Christians being all weird and said, how is this even possible? Not only possible, it's not even doable. It's, it's, it's unhealthy. And Christians came along and said, here's the Christian sex ethic. And once people tried it, it won their culture. I can't think of two things that Christians are not very different from the rest of the world in our culture today than what we do with money and what we do with our bodies. Can you? When I look at our culture today, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things for me as a pastor that grieves me but also challenges me is that when it comes to how we deal with the issue of money and how we deal with the issue of sexuality with our bodies, there is little difference than the watching world out there. Sermon on the Mount is about this powerful powerful message that when the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God comes into your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, there is radical renovation. There's radical change, transformation that occurs in our hearts and our lives. And listen very carefully to the next sentence. The most damaging, not the most sinful, the most damaging thing to that work that God wants to do in our lives is sexual sins. Let me say it again. Let me say it again. This work that God wants to do through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the most damaging, not the most sinful, we live in a culture where Christians unfortunately kind of uphold sexual sins as if it's like the worst end-all and be-all sins. It's not. But the most damaging, and I'll get into that today, 
to the work that God wants to do in our lives is the issue of sexuality or sexual sins. Why? Because the issue of sex is not just the thing out there, the issue of sex, as the Bible says over again, gets to the hard core of our reality, hard core of who we are. It's not just a physical thing. It's not just the thing that I do because I'm a... It hits us at the core of our soul in a way that nothing else can. Let me put it this way. In all of my years as being a pastor... I've had a number of people who struggled deeply for years with drugs and alcohol and all the kinds of hardcore things who didn't struggle as much later on as people who struggled deeply with sexual sins. And years later, years later, they still have a hard time believing in who God is and what he says about him and us. Just anecdotal, but as a pastor, as a pastor, I've seen people hardcore alcoholic for 30 years come to know Christ and be able to embrace the gospel of grace and gospel of love and move forward. But I've seen people who struggle deeply with sexual sins in their lives come to know Christ and struggle and struggle and struggle believing what the Bible says about who God is and who we are. Because it hits us at the core of our reality and like few things can. Sermon on the Mount (laughs) <laughs> we're going at a snail's face. I just can't help myself. How do you talk about sex like in a 30-minute sermon and be like, y'all got it? Okay, let's move on. You know, it's been seven years since I preached on this thing, you know, and I need to move on. This is like I need, to, I need to get going because there's like 13 other sermons that are critical that talk about some amazing things about what it means to live a life of the follower of Christ as a disciple. But so far we've covered... Um, I think about four verses where we talked about anger and murder. And Jesus comes, of course, and he says, listen, you live in a time in which the religious leaders say it's about the external conformity to some laws. But Jesus says, I care a lot more about what's going on inside your heart, not just external conformity. And he says, murder is not just about physically killing somebody. It's about that. It's out of your heart. Same thing comes to adultery. He says, I'm not just concerned about you physically sleeping with somebody who's not your wife. He says, I care about the condition of your heart and the purity of your heart. So we come to this verse. Some of this is brief review from last week or two weeks ago. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. By the way, um, when I talk about sex and money, people don't walk out of church singing. So it's been really hard for me the last couple weeks. When I preach on this stuff, nobody walks out going, that was awesome today. Nobody does that. You walk out here kind of heavy, kind of burdened. Um, which I don't mind if it's the Holy Spirit convicting you. And that's all I want to do today is pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you. We said last week or two weeks ago that Jesus is building on the Old Testament sex ethic. What is the Old Testament sex ethic? The Bible is very clear. He says no sex outside of a covenant. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The word adultery is sex outside of a covenant. That is, you're having sex with someone that you're not married to. Now, inherent in this idea of prohibition against sex outside of a marriage or outside of a covenant is this idea that you also don't have sex without a covenant. It's not just sex outside of a covenant, someone you're not married to. But if you do not have a covenant with somebody, then you don't sex with them. And the Bible has said throughout, and the church has said, by the way, I said this two weeks ago, think of how many things do these people agree on, all three branches of Christianity, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, all of Judaism, and all of Islam. All three religions agree on this one thing, that is sex is for a husband and wife in the context of marriage. How often does that happen? How often does that happen? 
Sex is between a husband and wife in the context of marriage. Now you go, Peter, where do you get that? I get it from the Bible, Genesis 2, 24. It says that is why man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And the word cleave is the essence of marriage. The word cleave literally, you guys, in Hebrew means to make a covenant is to make a covenant you say what is a covenant a covenant is to make a public vow of absolute faithfulness and commitment here's a definition of a covenant a covenant relationship or a marriage is where you're making a public promise to permanently exclusively and legally commit to sharing your entire life with someone else and the bible says it is that context and only in that context that you become one flesh now listen very carefully if you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm a visitor, I came, and there's a pastor talking about sex and how it's sinful and all this. Listen, as I said two weeks ago, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to do the pessimistic negative, you're going to go to hell and all that stuff. I want to elevate, I want to elevate the profound, beautiful, glorious thing that sex is. And God says, when you use it in this context, it's the most amazing thing ever. But you use it outside of that context, and it can be one of the most destructive things ever. Paul picks up on this idea, by the way, that sex was meant for a covenant in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and Lord for the body. Verse 16, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Flee from sexual immorality, the word there is porneia, Pornea, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul says throughout this text and other places, flee from pornea. What is pornea? Pornea literally meant any kind of sex outside of a marriage, any kind of sex outside of covenant. And Paul says not just, you know, it's beneficial for you if you just kind of don't have sex with someone who you're not married to. He says flee from it. Flee from it. He's saying, get the heck away from it. Take it seriously. Why? 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 Because you're going to hell? No. Because it's bad to sleep with the prostitute? No. It's not anywhere in the Bible, is it? Why does Paul say, flee from pornea? Here's the reason why. Paul says in sex, there's one flesh union. What does that mean, one flesh union? The word flesh is not the word soma in Greek. It's not just flesh as in the body. There are two other places in Joel and Acts where God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's not talking about physical receptacles. What's he talking about? The word soma or flesh in the New Testament literally means personhood. Personhood. Embodied personhood. So Paul is not saying in there, you know, if you have physical union with a prostitute, then you become physically united with a prostitute. That's redundant. He says if you have physical union with a prostitute, and by the way, the word prostitute, don't get thrown off by that. Um, there were no single young adults in Paul's day. I know, which is kind of a bummer because in two weeks when I talk about singleness and dating, you're going to go, good luck with that, buddy, okay? Because I'm going to talk about that. Next, we're going to talk about marriage and divorce. And then the week after that. There are no single young adults, which means that if you were single, you were most likely a prostitute or you were married. That was the context. So Paul says, so he's not talking about some, you know, some sex. He says, listen, he says, if you have physical union with someone that you're not married to, he says, there is a embodied personhood oneness. In other words, there is a body, soul, mind, emotional, all that you are bonding. 
Do you know that that's what happens? I don't care if it's a casual one-night stand or you two really care about and love each other, so as long as we love each other, we can. There is, there is, in the act of physical oneness, a body, mind, soul oneness. The Bible says that God intended sex for this. God intended sex for intimacy and whole life oneness. Which means that you can't have physical oneness, listen carefully, without whole life oneness. God created sex in such a way that physical oneness is supposed to go along with whole life oneness. Physical oneness has to be done in the context of body, emotional, physical, legal oneness. Otherwise, when you separate the physical oneness apart from every other oneness, as C.S. Lewis says, it becomes a monstrosity. It becomes a monstrosity that begins to work a toxic thing in our soul. If you've had sex, you know this dynamic that when you physically give yourself to somebody, there's something inside of you. And God created us this way. There's a force of something inside of us that says, you know, as I make myself physically vulnerable to you, and there's nothing more physically vulnerable than physically naked. As I make myself vulnerable to you physically, there's a part of me that wants to be vulnerable in every other way. As I physically give myself to you, there's a part of me that says, I want to belong to you in every other way, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, legally, whole life. I want to give all of myself. There's this force that tends to, that's why the concept of free sex or casual sex in our culture, it's the most ridiculous thing ever. You could have sex without giving love, but you can never have sex without giving all of who you are. You can't. You can have sex to say, I'm just going to give you some of my, my physically. But there's no such thing as just physically give myself to you without the rest. Of, I quoted Cameron Diaz last two weeks ago. So let me quote Cameron Diaz again in Vanilla Sky. And our culture even knows this, right? Gospel according to Cameron Diaz. Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Now, let me just read this email. From a a healthy single young man in our church in his 30s. He says, you know, I appreciate what you said, that some folks in our church have, a heavily, have been heavily influenced by the cultural values more than biblical values in regards to sexuality. I think we get caught up in popular culture and forget about what God has called us to do, called us as friends and spouses. Definitely difficult as we are a generation of 30-something singles, unlike our parents and grandparents, who are married at the latest by their mid-20s. We tend to overlook the ramifications of our sexual transgressions or what drives our romantic lives, which eventually leads to emotionally damaging dating experiences and broken marriages. He says, modern research is pushing the benefits of active sex lives and masturbation without discussing the emotional baggage of casual sex and how damaging porn addiction and masturbation can be to a relationship. I'm not against sex education for children, but we only teach about physical pleasure and proper protection. Do you know why our culture does that? It's because our culture views sex as just a physical appetite. That's all it is. So if that's all it is, well, let's just make sure that we protect our children physically or teach them educationally. And it says, we don't teach our children about emotional and spiritual damage that comes with the life of premarital and casual sex. This guy, by the way, works as a high school counselor. We're raising a generation of emotionally damaged men and women. I can't tell you how many girls I've taken out or dated 
Um, this might be offensive to some of you, so I'm going to put it in quotes, okay? Take, taking out a, a dater who are what we, what we guys call psycho chicks and, or emotionally immature, to which I say, women say the same thing about you guys too, okay? All right. <laughs> Can I get an amen, ladies? Yeah. Okay, it's it a little more robust than I had anticipated. Okay, anyway. Y'all need to talk to each other. Can I get an amen on that? Y'all need to talk to each other. Stop assuming things about each other. <clears throat> anyway. And this, this is the sad part. This is the sad part. He says, these are Peter. These are not secular women, but Christians who are active church members. And then he says, it can usually be traced back, traced back to unhealthy relationships where they were sexually active. Look, I'm glad you touched upon the importance of friendship and growth. Some friends and I were debating the issue of chemistry, friendship, and growth this past Sunday night. I don't think many of us even know how to date, how to court, or eventually marry. This is true. I don't believe we know how to deliver ourselves from our baggage before entering new relationships. Unfortunately, fornication or sexual morality has become a dating expectation and norm for Christians. Truth. This guy's speaking from, he's speaking honest and vulnerable. This is the reason why Paul says throughout the passage, and Jesus says, don't separate your body from the rest of yourself. When you give your body to somebody, you got to give your whole self because God created sex for intimacy and whole life illness. Listen, let me just put it this way. When you have sex, when you physically give yourself to somebody, and you make yourself vulnerable. It's, it's about a longing for intimacy. It's about a longing to connect with someone at a deep level. It's about wanting to say, you know me as I am, warts and all, all that I am. I'm fully known, but yet I'm fully accepted without fear. And sex is that one act in which you're saying, I'm going to be fully known by you, and I'm going to be fully accepted, right, without rejection. So I'm not just going to give myself physically, but I'm going to give all of myself to you. And when you do that, you put yourself out there in a vulnerable way, and when the other person reciprocates, when the other person says, as you have totally been vulnerable and given all of yourself to me, I too... Give all of myself to you. When that other person reciprocates your vulnerability, the result is deep intimacy, soul nurture. This feeling of, I am known by you, and I'm totally accepted by you. There's nothing more lonely than waking up after you slept with somebody the next morning, and they don't even know your name. Whole life oneness. Sex is the one commitment apparatus that God gave. That when you do it, and the more you do it, in the context of whole life giving, listen to this, it increases your ability to trust. It increases your ability to give of yourself. It increases your ability to say, I'm going to be vulnerable, I'm going to trust which enables you to experience intimacy because you can't experience intimacy without trust. That's why when you use sex outside the boundaries of God, it works the other way. It makes it harder and harder for you to trust people. It makes it harder and harder for you to make yourself vulnerable. It makes it harder and harder for you to give of yourself, which makes it harder and harder for you to experience intimacy. And we all long and deepen our souls for intimacy. 
This is why when I've counseled married couples, and there's an issue with jealousy, just extreme jealousy and just anger and so on. So, and I'll sit down and I'll ask at one point, any one of you commit a sexual sin against your spouse? And inevitably, one of them will say yes. And they'll turn to me and go, that's why I don't trust him anymore. Or that's why I don't trust her anymore. And it's taken weeks and months, and we're still not there. Some of you are the direct descendants of this from your parents. You come from a family in which one of your dad or mom wasn't faithful to your mom or dad, and you saw what it did to that marriage. This is an incredibly deep, rich, powerful tool that God gave. And we use it like it's physical appetite. Feel like having sex? Go have sex. And God says, do you know the gravity of how I wired you with this? By the way, if you're married, see, covenant is not just the context for sex, but sex is also a covenant, covenant cementing, covenant gluing thing, which means this, that in a marriage, inevitably, if there is issue with sexual, uh, uh, sexual intimacy, um, it's going to affect other areas. And a lot of times, other areas affect sexual intimacy. And so I'm just going to throw this out there and you move on. If you're a married couple and there's been issues in the area of sexual intimacy, I'm telling you, just don't just sweep it under the rug and go, oh, well, you know, most people, a lot of people, it's just a part of No, no, no. There might be something deeper. There might be something deeper. Don't just shrug it off. Don't just shrug it off. Then Jesus says, we need to move on, you guys. Then Jesus says, I want to talk to you about your mind and your thinking, not just your bodies. Verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A couple of weeks ago, I shared that the Jesus used a particularly interesting word when he says, looks at a woman lustfully. In the Greek, it literally says, anyone who looks in order to lust. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's a, there's a looking, there's an aspect in which you look at me, oh, wow, she's attractive, he's attractive, wow, so on and so forth. But then he says, there's a looking that leads to an in order to. There's a looking that's tied to a motivation. There's a looking that's, that, that's tied to a motivation that begins to do its dirty work in you. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Jesus says, it's not just looking, but it's looking in order to lust. What does the word lust mean? Remember what we talked about. Lust is not some deviant sexual thing in the corner of somebody. Lust literally in Greek means idolatry or inordinate desire or greed. Jesus uses a word that doesn't mean some sexual deviant thing, but he says lusting when it comes to issue of sexuality. He says the issue of sex can get caught up with this dynamic of lust. And what is lust? An inordinate desire, greed for something, idolatry. And I said that I use this illustration. The best way to understand this is to think about something that's neutrally good in of itself and its effect when idolatry or inordinate lust or greed gets hold of it. Money. Money. Money is a perfectly neutral thing. Throughout the Bible, God blesses people with resources. God blesses people with money. Money in and of itself is not a negative thing. But what happens when people take money and there's a lust that's added to it? 
three things happen. One, selfish. You become selfish. When a lust dynamic gets a hold of money, you become greedy, you're selfish. You don't want to share it. You want it all for yourself. You don't care less about anybody else. It's all for you. Second thing that happens is there's an addiction nature to greed. What do I mean? If you're greedy about money, you're addicted to what? Making more of it. However I can get it. I'll step all over people. I'll, I, I, I'll, I'll ignore ethics. I'll do whatever it takes for me to get it. So there's selfishness and addiction aspect. And then third, there's fantasizing. You can't help think about it. That's all you think about. Any free time you have, that's all you think about. How do I make more money? What am I going to do with my money? How do I invest it? How do I get more returns? When you get money and that neutral thing and you add a lust dynamic to it, you become selfish with money, you become addicted to money, and you begin fantasizing about money. Jesus says, when you get the issue of sex and a lust dynamic gets a hold of it, you become selfish with sex, you become addicted to sex, and you fantasize about sex. I said there's four things that happened. We covered one last uh, two weeks ago. And I'm just going to quickly go uh, by this. We can't spend a long time on idolatry attitude towards sex leads to confusion of lust with love. Remember we talked about this? What's the difference between lust and love? Lust is about pleasure. Love is about a person. Lust wants women in general. Love wants a particular kind and particular woman. Lust is about volume, how many, how often. Love is about how I've cherished this one person. If you have sexual desire for someone you don't even know and you don't care to know, you don't care about that person. That's the last dynamic of saying, that person exists for me, my needs, my needs only. I care less about you. Lust, love. Second thing that happens, it leads to addiction to pornography and masturbation. Can you think of, can you think of something that's more aptly characterized by addiction, selfish, fantasizing? We live in a, we live in a, I'll call it a pornified culture. We live in a culture that's been pornified. I'm going to show you the effects of it. We live in a pornified culture where we have completely reversed what sex is. Sex is not about self-gratification. Sex is about self-donation. Sex is not about pleasing yourself. Do you know that pleasing yourself is the least pleasurable experience there is? Do you know what true pleasure is? It's the ability to give pleasure to somebody. Do you know what true joy is? Not getting off on yourself and what I can enjoy. True joy is when you can make someone else joyful. Sex, when it's selfish, addiction, fantasy, leads to pornography and masturbation. Now, this book, for some of you that are interested in delving more into this, Premarital Sex in America, How Young Americans Meet Mate Think About Marriage. In this book, the authors list commonly held beliefs about sex, and they show through empirical evidence. They do their research. They do their study about how commonly held beliefs about issue of sex in our culture is completely idiotic. Here's one. You ready? Here's one thing that they cover. Our culture believes pornography doesn't affect anybody. Pornography is just, you know, it's individual. It's private. Matter of fact, for some couples, it'll help your sex life. That's what our culture believes about pornography. They Throughout research, empirical evidence found these things about pornography. One, people who use pornography have crushingly unrealistic expectations regarding physical appearance and sexual performance. I often talk to women who go, Peter, why is it that single men, even Christian men, have these values about the kind of mate they're looking for and they have the... If I know them well, here's what I say. 
Because we live in a pornified culture where their image of who they want to marry, their image of who they think is an ideal candidate, of their image has been so influenced by pornography that they have unrealistic expectations. If you're sitting here, I'm going to be gently affirm, if you're sitting here as a single person and you've bypassed unbelievable amount of really good potential mates because they just weren't attractive enough, you might be influenced by the pornography culture in our, in our society. Second thing, a significant number of male pornography users have a diminished tolerance for the difficulties of real relationships and thereby strengths their marriage both for women. When you're addicted to pornography or you live in a pornified culture where you can get pleasure anytime you want to and you actually get into a relationship where you have to work, God forbid, they talk back to you, they talk back to me, what? They tell me things I don't like, what? No, think about this, think about this. I know it's funny and it's ha-ha, nervous stuff. Think about this. Pornography, guys, and moving to if pornography is a cultural thing in which you get pleasure anytime you want it, whenever you want it, and that has totally influenced you, when you actually get into a relationship with flesh and blood human beings, they talk back to you, they act in ways that you don't want, it diminishes your ability to go, what is a relationship all about? It's about us sharpening one another and growing towards Christ. And how do we respond? We just go, no, you're just too difficult. You do that. You're too that. You're too that. And I'm done. And in my limited experience, this affects men way more than it does women. I have lots of men. When I ask them, why aren't you with her? Why aren't you with her? Their answer, ah, she talked too much. What? Like what? You just wanted her to be mute? But if you're sitting there and you're getting your sexual pleasure from someone, who gives you what you want, when you want, how you want it, why would you be inclined to a relationship that takes effort, sacrifice, time? Here's a third. And this, by the way, for me, was the most like, oh, burdening. Women are increasingly being forced to accommodate sexual behaviors and appearances to the images and styles of pornography. I just talked to a single woman a couple weeks ago who said to me, Pastor Peter, when I'm in a relationship where I'm with a guy and he actually says, I think you're really beautiful, these are her words. She goes, I don't believe him. I don't believe him. I have a hard time believing and accepting it. And she didn't have to spell it out. Why? We're brainwashed in our culture to go, this is beauty, this is beauty, this is beauty, this is beauty. Which indirectly says, so you're not beautiful. You're not tall enough. You're not skinny enough. You're not this color enough. You're not this enough. And our message is bombarded to you. Christian men and women, Christian men and women, are we any different? I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm like overwhelmed thinking about this. Because we Christians and followers of Jesus can be different, radical, counterculture, blah, 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 in lots of different ways. And I'm grateful for that. But I'm afraid that there's a casual sort of cavalier attitude when it comes to the issue of sexuality. If we don't get this, listen to me, if we don't get this, we'll never, we'll never be the authentic kingdom counterculture community that God calls us to be. Never. 
as long as our value system is driven by the world and a pornified culture, we will never date, courtship, or marry in a way that the watching world goes, whoa, that's beautiful. Never. Are you taking this seriously? Third, I got to go on. I got to go on. Third effect, third effect that lust dynamic has on our culture when it comes to issue of sex and sexuality, belief that you can't be a whole person and actually live a happy life without sex. We believe this. Can I just tell you something? And I wish I could take more time to preach on this. Do you know why God designed sex? Do you know why God designed sex? Do you want to hear an amazing thing? Do you want to hear an amazing thing? Throughout the Old Testament, God goes, I am the, I am the husband and Israel is what? My bride. Jesus comes on and says to the church, I am the bridegroom and the church is what? My bride. In Romans 7, Romans 7, it actually says that we throw our arms, the church, throw our arms into the hands of God the Father and he births something through the church out into the world. The Bible uses graphic language to describe the issue of intimacy between the church and God to describe what? Listen to this. Do you know what sex is? Sex is a pointer. Do you know what the pointer is? Sex is a pointer to the ultimate intimacy and the ultimate ecstasy we will experience when we are fully known and fully accepted by God without rejection. God designed sex so that in the midst of it, you're going, this is amazing. Closure, intimacy. God says, I designed it so it could be a pointer, a pointer and a signpost to the ultimate intimacy, to the ultimate ecstasy, to the ultimate knowledge that you will one day experience when you see God face to face. Sex is a signpost. Do you know what that means? Have you ever driven into Chicago like from out of state? You drive out of state? You see a signpost that says what? Chicago, 50 miles. No fool stops at that point going, woohoo, we're here. <laughs> Where's Sears Tower? Where's Lake Michigan? <laughs> Off the highway, you're looking at what? What are you doing? And yet that's what we're doing in our culture about sex. In our culture, we're having sex and sexual intimacy. And we're literally saying, we've arrived. We're here. And God's going, no, you can't find the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the closure, and the intimacy that your heart longs for here and now. No matter how good the sex is, no matter how intimate it is, it is a pointer to the ultimate intimacy that awaits when you see me face to face. That's why no amount of the most mind-blowing sex on earth will ever leave you completely satisfied and then going, because it wasn't meant to, and yet we're trying. We're trying. We're looking, going, if I just have the mate, if I just have the person, if I could just find sexual chemistry and intimacy, I will. And God goes, you will search forever. Fourth. Reoccurring dream and fantasy about having a perfect marriage, a perfect family, perfect children, perfect home. Confession time. How many of you guys say to yourself, if I have a perfect marriage, I know I'll be content? Liars! (laughs) How many of you guys? Do we struggle with this? Amen? Of course we do. Some of us that are married, you're too into it. I don't, I'm having a hard time. That's it. Why? Because it's not the marriage I thought it was going to be. Really? Tell me about the marriage you thought it was going to be. 
This is the most subtle form of sexual idolatry. And Christian communities just foster it and nurture it. I'm so sorry. You go to Christian bookstores and there are shelves and shelves and shelves of books about how to have a perfect marriage, how to have a perfect family, raise perfect kids. I just want to burn them all. Because we're fostering an entire generation of people who think that if you just marry the right guy, you're going to be happy. I've got news for you. You won't. If I just have the perfect kids and family, I will. You won't. The only thing that could meet that need is God. The only person that can meet that need is God. Not your spouse, not your family, not your kids. Find my soulmate. There is no such thing. No such thing. I dare you to find it and bring her to me. Or bring him to me. I dare you. I double dare you. And if you're married, don't you dare come up and go, here's my soulmate. I know you. Another thing, there's no such thing as the most perfectly compatible person. They don't exist. They don't exist. I'll just read a quote from a guy named Stanley Howerless. I know Michael enjoys him. I do too. Destructive to marriage is self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, give it a little while and they'll change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Here's another most idiotic thing. I know th- t- today must feel like a lot of us, like I'm in a twilight zone because this guy is saying stuff that absolutely sounds like BS. Because we are sitting here going, what? Listen to me. Where do we get up with? It's love. Why it's got to be so hard? Where does that come from? Why would you think that two neurotic, self-centered, self-absorbed, utterly immature people, just because they're in love, become angels? Where do you get that from? I never hear somebody go, you know, why has it got to be so hard to hit a 95-mile-hour fastball? We never hear somebody go, why is it so hard to write that great, amazing American novel? We never do. Why? Because we know that in order to become a professional ball player, become an amazing writer, it takes an enormous amount of discipline and hard work. There are lots of professional athletes who achieve great things, lots of great writers and artists who achieve great things who failed miserably at marriage. What makes you think marriage is easy? Marriage is a thousand times harder than being a professional athlete and a thousand times harder than writing a great novel. Let me give you advice. When you meet that person that you feel like is the right person, here's what you want. Go up to them and go, you're the wrong person for me. And the other person go, you're the wrong person for me. 
Pradeep, Laura, you guys can go ahead and do that right now. You're the wrong person for me. I just saw Laura do it. They're, they're, they're getting married in September. I just saw Laura turn over to Pradeep and just smile at him. Here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Everybody, come on back. Everybody, come on back. Come on. Here's the reason why. Do you understand what I'm saying? The reason why you're saying you're the wrong person for me is why? Because you're saying to them, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're self-absorbed. I'm self-absorbed. You're immature. I'm immature. Okay? So you're the wrong person for me. I'm the wrong person for you. But what is a marriage? Marriage is not two perfectly compatible people but two somewhat compatible people coming together and going, will you sharpen me as I sharpen you? Will you work on me so as I work on you? That's the beauty of marriage. (laughs) I just thought about, some of you truly are dating the wrong person. And you're going, thank the Lord, I knew it. I was waiting for you, Lord, to say it. And all of your friends are like, he's the wrong guy. You're sitting there going, I knew it. You hear him? That's not what I mean. <laughs> Michael, will you t- that's not what I mean. You know what I mean, right? 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 <laughs> Good Lord, that was scary. I'm serious. If you're sitting there and your community is like, he's the wrong guy. She's the wrong girl. Don't take this in affirmation. I heard from the Lord. This is who I'm supposed to marry. Okay, let's finish. Let's finish. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, Jesus goes on a rant, by the way. I'm almost done. Gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is not being literal. In church history, there were a couple people who took it literally. Jesus is not being literal. He's not being literal. His point, be drastic. His point, what do you have to do? Who do you have to tell? Where do you have to go? How far do you have to go? What lengths will you go? What will you do? As you look at your life and the various aspects of your life in which lust dynamic is having an absolute chaotic influence, what do you have to do? How far do you, how drastic are you willing to go? Let me put it this way. If you're maimed or you're disfigured, if you're maimed or you're disfigured, you're losing a part of yourself and you can no longer do something that you like to, or you once at one time liked to, liked to have done. If there's cancer in your arm, you cut it off. Because even though it would be loved, lovely and great to have that arm, if the cancer spreads, you die. You die. It'd be great to have that hand. But if that cancer spreads to the rest of your body, you die. So Jesus says, cut it off. Let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. There are certain, did you look up here? There are certain people. There are certain people that when you're with, it stirs the lust dynamic. What is Jesus saying? Cut them off. <gasps> but that's drastic. That's the point. There are magazine subscriptions, movie subscriptions, TV subscriptions, that when you watch it, it stirs the lust dynamic. What's Jesus saying? Cut it off. There are certain places you go, certain environments, that stirs the lust dynamic. Can I just, I can go on and on, examples and stuff, but can I, let me just say this. If you go clubbing 
and you know it stirs your lust dynamic, this isn't being legalistic, like, oh my gosh, look at that. I'm just saying. You have freedom to do whatever you want to do. But if going clubbing stirs up your lust dynamic, why do you go? If your eye causes you to stir the lust dynamic, stop watching it. If your feet causes you to go to a place that stirs up the lust dynamic, stop going. If your hand causes you to stir lust dynamic, stop doing it. Jesus' point. Jesus' point. Are you willing to become culturally maimed? People go, oh, you don't watch that show? Are you a loser? Well, it stirs the lust dynamic. So I don't watch it. Have you seen that movie? It's the most am- Well, it stirs the lust dynamic. For some of us, if you're addicted to pornography, putting in a software that says, hey, when I watch it, somebody else will get it, that may work. Others of us, it may not. It may mean we don't have a computer at home and we have to actually walk to a library or some public space. That's Jesus' point. What do you have to do? What do I have to do? What do we have to do? To be drastic. Why? He says it's about fire. You're playing with fire. If you're sitting on a couch and there's a spark on the other end of the couch, you go, well, it's way over there and it's kind of small. No. You go and you get the thing out. Jesus, why are you messing around? Why are you dabbling? When you know the absolute destructive, hellish impact that it could have. Okay, practical, practical application, and then we're done. Practical application, and we're done. I got to be quick. I got to be quick. One, make a distinction between thought and fantasy. Make a distinction between thought and fantasy. What do I mean? How many of us can stop thoughts from entering our minds? Answer? Nobody. I'm driving. How many? I'm driving. Bop! What the heck? Anybody relate? Like, what? What? Here's the thing, though. You could, you can't control. Boop! But what you can't control, fantasy, is taking that thought and just rolling it around the tongue of your soul. Hmm. Hmm. Martin Luther gave this analogy. You can't stop a bird from coming around pooping on your head. You can't stop a bird from coming around. What you can't stop is him boop, nesting on your head. And then the amazing thing about this and tricky thing is, do you know that even though Satan can't read our minds, he could plant thoughts in our minds? Do you know that? Satan can't read your mind. You think he, spiritual warfare, go check out the sermon series a year ago. He can't read them, but he could plant. And here's why. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, listen, we are taking every thought captive according to the obedience of Christ. The battle, listen, the battle here is going to dictate the battle in your behavior. We are consumed about what we do and not do. The greater battle is what you dwell on, what I dwell on. Thought, fantasy. Two, real quick. Watch what you watch. If heart adultery is the result of eye adultery, the only way to deal with the problem is at its beginning, which is with your eyes. Listen to what Job said. This is so powerful. Job 31.1. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. And then listen to this. He says, if my steps have turned from the path, if my heart, so he went from eyes to heart, 
led by my eyes. Verse 9, if my heart has been enticed by a woman. Job is saying that the control of his heart was due to the control of his eyes. Can I just say this? We will never be the church where I'll get up and go, you can't watch rated R movies. Why? Frankly, there are some PG movies that are more unbiblical than rated R movies in its message. We're not going to do that. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Some of us are more visually impacted by others. Yes? Yes? They say generally men are, but women too. Visually, which means if you're watching something that for other people doesn't bother them one bit, but it bothers you and it stirs the lust dynamic, stop watching it. Stop watching it. I heard this analogy a long time ago, and then move on. I think it may have been Tony Campolo. He says our mind's like a file cabinet. Do you know, when I was 10 years old, 10 years old, I was at a Boy Scout camp. Boy Scout camp. Second night, 10-year-old beds in Boy Scout. We're all in our bunk beds and flashlight, playing stupid games. And then one of the kids was like, hey, guys, guess what I have? All the kids came down from their bunk beds. He had a stack of Playboy that his dad owned. He brought to the camp. I still have images seared in my mind from something that I saw 23 years ago. And the way Satan works with me, it's like every image, doop, gets into a file cabinet. And I'll be driving somewhere. Satan goes, pull out the file cabinet. Remember this? Boop. You all know what I'm talking about? Watch what you watch. Three, give your sexual desires to God. You cannot, you will never, 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 you will never, 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 you will never, have I made myself clear? You will never overcome sexual desires, temptation, sexual sin unless you give it to God. There's enormous difference between fasting and deprivation. Fasting, when you go on a diet, fasting, you choose to go on it for health reasons, so on and so forth. So when you're extremely hungry, it's hard, but it's not agony. Deprivation is when you want something, but you can't have it because people won't give it to you. Or you can't have it because you can't afford it. Many of us are not fasting when it comes to sexual desire. We're in deprivation mode. I want it. Oh, but I can't because I might go to hell. I'm a bad Christian. What will they think of me? Uh, we're not fasting. We're in deprivation. Have you given your sexual desires to God and said, God, I give it to you. I'm not going to be in deprivation mode and be upset and angry No, no, because no, you're not giving it. But I'm fasting. I'm giving it to you. There's a higher godly purpose for this. What does it mean to give your sexual desires to God? I'll put it this way. It's saying, God, I will not give of myself sexually to another person outside of marriage, and I won't complain. Singles. God, I will wait for the right man or the right woman, and I won't complain. That's what it means to give your desires to God and to die to it. And here's the thing. Give it to God, die to it, and God may resurrect it. And God may resurrect it in form, in the form of somebody that you could be with for the rest of your life. Or, and I love this, he may give you power, strength in the person of the Holy Spirit to be single and to be content. 
I've seen both happen. Have you given your sexual desires to God? Are you fasting? Are you in deprivation mode? Fourth, um, find grace and forgiveness for your sexual past. I talked to a young lady. Um, I talked to a young lady. This was about a year and a half ago. I have lots of conversations at coffee shops with people who share some amazing things and just heartbreaking things. Thank you, Michael. And this young lady who came to our church for a little bit and then left um, began sharing with me about her sexual history, sexual past. I was just struggling with it. And then, and I'll never forget, she said this. She goes, Pastor Peter, I felt like all my life I'm damaged goods. So it doesn't really matter. Like, God wants me, I'm going to give it to him. He wants, I'm gonna... And she's the only person I've seen this dynamic where people go, I'm already ruined, I'm already messed up, I'm already damaged. And so, and the gospel of God's grace and forgiveness that says, God specializes in taking the most messed up people and brings about redemption and glory like no one else can. You look at the genealogy of Jesus for crying out loud in Matthew 1, and you have Rahab, who is a prostitute. This is a genealogy of Jesus. And Tamar, who's guilty of incest. Jesus, God, puts these people in his genealogy to say that no matter what your past is, no matter how messed up, how sexually broken your past may be, God says because of the cross, you can be forgiven, you can be healed, you can be restored, you can be made new. Amen? That that hope that we never, ever again have to look at our sexual past and sexual history and sexual sins through the eyes of our culture, through the eyes, even our own eyes, but we look at them through the eyes of the cross and we hear our Heavenly Father saying, my specialty is in taking the most messed up people, regardless of how far you've gone, regardless of what you've done, and to bring healing, forgiveness, restoration for you in the name of Jesus. And that is there anybody sitting here and you've listened to the eyes of the enemy for all these weeks and months and years. And basically, you're just kind of giving yourself to go, ah, it doesn't really matter. Why? Because God doesn't love me. God doesn't forgive me. I've done all these things. I need you to know today that in order to deal with your sexual present, you've got to understand that you've been forgiven of your past. And that you've been forgiven and cleansed and restored. And that when God looks at you, this is the amazing thing. God looks at you as pure holy, righteous. But you don't know what, they, what he did. God says, doesn't matter. I see you now as pure, as holy, as righteous in me. And lastly, Carlton, come on up. Go to the gospel. Go to the gospel. Go to the gospel. Go to the, what do I mean? I'm going to tell you guys this right now. I'm going to tell you this right, right now. If you don't remember anything from this sermon, please remember this today. I'm 43 years old. I'll just share my personal thing. I'm 43 years old, and I've been a Christian for more than half of my life. 
And the way that I've tried for years and years and years before the gospel really took a hold of my heart was to discipline. You know, it's a matter of my will. I got a will and self-control and stuff. And I just, it's saying no, saying no. Just saying no to that. Get accountability, saying no. And all of these some points worked in seasons. And all, but it's just really hard until I began to realize the gospel's power in overcoming sexual sin. And that is this. You can't just keep saying no, 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 no. No to sexual desire. No to sexual sin. No to sexual ambition. I'm going to just discipline myself. You have to find say something to say yes to. The only way to stop longing for that thing that will never satisfy is to find something that will eternally satisfy. My personal testimony to you is that the years of no and I got to discipline in the community, at the end of the day, all of those things are important and critical, but at the end of the day, unless your heart finds something that's eternally more glorious, more beautiful, more amazing, more fulfilling than anything, including sexual pleasure in this world you will never be able to say no never you have to go to the gospel and go i'm not just going to come to you and tell you what i want i'm going to come to you today and i want to with my life say you're all that i need that you and i would find him infinitely more beautiful infinitely more precious infinitely more amazing and that will capture our hearts, capture our souls. That will capture our imagination. And you need to do this daily.